Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ordinary Life. Great to see all of you who are here in person. There's just like a huge crowd here. It's just amazing. Uh, okay, little, little chuckles from the um, audience on that. And welcome to all of you at home who are watching, whether it's breakfast time or dinner time. Glad you are with us. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Uh, one is that one of our longtime members, Marilis Price, who is 87 years old, broke her hip a couple of weeks ago, um, but she's doing fine. She's rocking the rehab, and she's going, coming home on Tuesday. So all is well for her, and we think she's watching live stream right now. So hooray, and Marilis, we're so glad you're doing well. And and say that another one of our members broke his hip on Friday, Tom Doherty. No, and he Tom is in did. a hospital in Albuquerque watching right now. Oh, Tom! We know you're watching, Tom, because you. Yes, you must be. Otherwise, you'd be sitting at our chair here, in our front row, front row, Tom. Uh, second or third announcement is that ordinary women will be again helping with food distribution at Boynton Church on September 11th. And if you want to volunteer, uh, just talk to me after service or uh, Sunday school today or contact Frida Hale, either one. Also, ordinary women will not resume ordinary meetings uh, in September as we hoped because of the, the surge with the Delta variant, but we hope to get back into it in October or as soon as we can. That's really all the announcements. Uh, unless anybody has anything they want to stand up and say. All righty, I'm going to turn it over to Bill and Holly, and I think there will be some discussion about the Haiti refugees and Afghani refugees also afterwards, or part of it, right? Yes. Don't know. All right, thank you so much. I'm out. Are you going to do that? Mm-hmm. Neil? Mm-hmm. You ready? You ready? Okay. <laughs> I don't think we have Haitian refugees, but we do have a way to support anyone who was impacted by the earthquake. Uh, Jim Bankston gave us a, a, a reference, and then our, the steering committee decided that among the funds that we currently have, which is around 13000 that we'll take half of it, put the bulk toward Afghan refugee resettlement and some toward Haitian relief. We'll see what happens with this hurricane, too. We may have something closer to home. Um, but that got approved by Finance Committee. What's to be decided is um, where. And right now, the two organizations that seem to be just really well-oiled machines around refugee resettlement are Interfaith Ministries and Catholic Charities, who are setting people up in apartments, getting all the requisite furniture, kitchenware, et cetera. But they're expecting in the coming months, so anywhere six to nine months from now, up to 2,500 Afghan refugees in Houston. There are many cities who are being uh, resettling cities, but we're just, we're just one of them. Um, and that's families, 2,500 families. No, I think individuals. That was verified in the Interfaith Ministries um, webinar that I was part of. So, um, so, but as of right now, I mean, there are, thousands of people being airlifted out of Afghanistan. And we know if we've been following the news that that is not easy going. So, so that's where we are with that. So um, if you um, don't get the text of these times and you would like to be included on the preview list or the summary list, just go to the Ordinary Life website, ordinarylife.org, and there's a way to sign up. And you will be uh, also then getting updates about what the steering committee decides to do and other things. Uh, we can communicate with each other across the platform that way about how we can help people. And then this afternoon, we have a tragedy happening right on the Gulf Coast with mm -hmm. a really, really bad hurricane uh, coming in somewhere between Lake Charles and New Orleans. Is that right? That looks like. 16 years ago was Katrina today. Hard to believe. So let us know if you, um, if, if you want to be on the website, I mean, sign up to get these summaries and previews. And uh, thanks, as always, uh, to Tim and John and William Budge, Olivia Watson, to um, 
Wayne and Calista Herbert, Richard Wingfield for doing all the logistics to make it possible for us to meet here. So these times are intended to help us grow in our awareness and acceptance of who we truly are, who our neighbor is, who sacred mystery is, who and how our identity is shaped by that and how we find expression in the world. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you, you are, are welcome, welcome here. here. So <clears throat> here we go. Mm -hmm. I want to make a deal. If you will tolerate my offering teachings that contribute to religious and spiritual literacy, that is, to knowledge and information about the Christian religious tradition, I promise to keep such offerings as brief as I can. <laughs> and I will also offer things that are aimed at helping us grow in uh, religious and spiritual wisdom and insight so that we can grow in our ability to experience and express peace, love, joy, patience, and humility. So today we are going to begin a deep dive into the Gospel of John. And I know that for some of you, just saying that causes you to go, oops, not sure, I want to do this. You're not enthused about it. By the way, the word enthused means to be filled with God. <laughs> in theos. So when you're enthusiastic about something, you fill with the Spirit. I did not know that until I read your intro. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh. And I love etymology. It's great. And I think there are others of you who may be quite eager and interested. And um, there are going to be a lot of problems involved in communicating what <laughs> I want to undertake and what we want to say. Um, I don't think the problems are insurmountable, but they are considerable. For example... The subtitle of one of the really dense commentaries I have on the Gospel of John, and not one that I would recommend, the subtitle of the book is Crossing Over into God. Everything about this brief phrase is wrong. Though I have modified this phrase for the title for today's class, it's still wrong. Crossing Over into Sacred Mystery. There's just so much about this that's problematic. First, Teresa of Avila, one of the church's great female mystics, said, you can't enter a room you are already in. Okay? So crossing over, although it's a great metaphor, one that uh, John uses a lot in his gospel, other, other gospel narratives do too, um, we're already there. We just lose awareness of that, I think. And, and the word God, the word God makes people think of some usually human-like being who's out there somewhere separated from us. And I, as I have said repeatedly, if there is one thing that I would like to be remembered about my teaching here, it is that God is not out there. But I think even the phrase... Not, wait, not the spiritual practice part? What? You don't want to be remembered for the spiritual practice part? I do want to be remembered about well. spiritual practice, but it it doesn't have as high a rank as, as this does. But thanks for that. Yeah, yeah, no and the word sacred mystery is a problem. because The word sacred is a problem because um, one of my favorite poets, Wendell Berry, yeah. says, all that is and all who are is sacred. We have just desecrated some things and some people. We're going to use the word mysticism a lot in the coming weeks and months. It doesn't mean spooky or weird. It refers to, and I think we'll be giving a multitude of, and a ho hopefully um, useful definitions as a, we go forward. It refers to an altered state of consciousness. And we all experience altered states of consciousness all the time. Tonight, when you get in bed and you go to sleep, you have an altered state of consciousness in your sleep. Sometimes we experience altered states of consciousness in our sleep because we have dreams. And those are altered states of consciousness within a state of another state of consciousness. So it's a way of being in the world, mysticism is, 
and relating to what is at a higher level of awareness and involvement. Maybe a better title for today's talk would have been Growing in Awareness of Who We Truly Are and Where We Truly Live. Mm. Yeah. So when we were recording our podcast the other day, you mentioned someone I had never heard of, um, Evelyn Underhill. And I think you had a confession that you had only just read her or something. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't even know who she is. She's hard to read. Uh, this book that I downloaded is not. Okay. It's lovely. Um, so naturally, I went to Google, Googled her, <laughs> downloaded a few of her books, and uh, read her Wikipedia page. She's very impressive. You are right. You mentioned that 800-page book, which I just don't think I have time for. But I did download for free a little book called Practical Mysticism. She explicitly wrote this book. She says this in the introduction. For those who wish to understand mysticism without living a monastic life or even being grounded in a particular religion. If I understand her correctly, she is wanting to make this mystical mindset accessible. She writes that where there is no vision, the people perish. So our goal, I think, in deconstructing and then hopefully reconstructing what John is about is just that to present mysticism accessibly, and as Bill mentioned, to ground God right here, not separate or out there. Part of the Gospel of John are the Book of Signs. These signs are centered around what we now, to believe, now believe to be fictional characters, you've mentioned that before, who set the stage to show off Jesus's kind of creative and transforming works in the world. These signs exist to reveal God's everywhere presence, and Jesus's radical move to take religion out of the institution, to place it in the world, among the people. The signs are also decidedly not literal, but mystical. There are a lot of confusing and unattainable ideas about mysticism. A lot of times, so what Evelyn Underhill says is that we read about it and we become more confused about what mysticism is after we've read about it. She, said, she writes, I think, rather cheekily, the seeker will learn that mysticism is a philosophy, an illusion, a kind of religion, a disease, that it means having visions, performing conjuring tricks, leading an idle, dreamy, selfish life, neglecting one's business, wallowing in vague spiritual emotions, and being in tune with the infinite. He will discover that it emancipates him from all dogmas, sometimes even from morality and at the same time that it is very superstitious. <laughs> but, so maybe it's Catholic piety, maybe it's the poet Walt Whitman, or better yet, she says, maybe it's the mango trick. And I just looked that up, too. Anyone know what the mango trick is? This was a mystical uh, kind of trick, <laughs> the mango trick, has been around for about 1,500 years. It's an Indian illusion, a Hindu illusion trick whereby a mango sprouts from a seed within a matter of minutes or hours. So the mango seed is placed in an empty bucket under a tripod formed by three sticks. So the bucket is upside down, the mango seed is under it, and a tripod of sticks is over it and covered with a cloth. After which the pot and the seed are taken out, it's filled with soil, water is poured into the pot, and again it's placed under the covered sticks. So the sticks form just a little tent where the cloth can sit over it. They sit around for a little while. Onlookers are asked to look under the cloth from time to time just to make sure there's no funny business. And after a while, the illusionist opens the cloth and takes out a newly sprouted mango plant. I watched a whole video on this. It was a 20-minute, that's why I'm not showing it here, <laughs> very old uh, showing of this on the street side in India. Then the plant seems to grow bigger and bigger under the cloth and ripe mangoes start falling to the ground, rolling out from underneath the tent. That's what we're going to do here. Bill, that part's up to you. Okay. <laughs> Finally, this illusionist removes the cloth to show a full-grown mango tree loaded with fruit. One aspect of mysticism is to make mangoes drop all over the floor. Still. Well, we have a professional magician in the yeah. audience, Scott Wills, uh -huh. so yeah. maybe he can do this. I'm yeah, sorry. I think so. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, you I guys, you guys figure this that. out. Okay. We expect great things in the coming weeks. Still, we're left with this question. 
What in the heck is mysticism? Underhill's very straightforward definition is, mysticism is the art of union with reality. The mystic is a person who has attained that union in greater or lesser degree, or who aims at and believes in such attainment. So of course now the question is, well, what is reality? That, I think, is what we have to discern for ourselves. But I can assure you that reality is far deeper and wider and more connected than any one of us can imagine right now. We know what a thing is by uniting with it. We know that being united is in some ways surrendering to all the layers of what is. So reality is a little bit of a surrender to being with what is. I think this is why Jesus could get away with saying, or be credited with getting away with saying things like the I am statements, or saying I and the Father are one, because he had this sense of being interconnected with reality. And he lived um, this reality. To borrow an illustration from Thich Nhat Hanh, so I have this sheet of paper, right? We've said this in here. The sheet of paper in my hand has a drawing on it done by my middle son. I can be in the moment with the paper and the drawing and appreciate that this drawing offers something for me by my son. But if I stop there, I will have missed the deeper layers of the reality in this paper. It is, I think, in two directions, an offering of love. So first, it was a seed, like the mango seed. It was nourished by water and wind and sun. And Eventually, that tree was harvested. It was milled, packaged, and sold as a ream of paper, which ended up in my printer. Now, it kind of that tree used to breathe oxygen into the living. Now, this tree breathes creativity into my son's hands. And I can imagine this forward. What will his gifts provide in the future? Right? So this piece of paper has a past, a whole entire history of being a tree, and has a future of what my son might offer the world as he grows up. Much simpler to say, I and the Father are one, because <laughs> I don't know that we can walk around with that explanation. But the point is to picture that explanation when we hear things like Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. Can we picture that reality spreads in two directions? Maybe more, probably four, probably eight, probably infinite. So all of these befores and afters, all of the durings, it's, reality is just so much more than what we have wrapped into these words. And mysticism is essentially seeking that deeper level of communion with life. You got that right. <laughs> so here's some religious literacy stuff. There are, as you know, there are four versions of the Jesus narrative that is accepted in the Christian scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have this particular collection because in the year 180, Bishop Irenaeus of what was then uh, called Gaul, now it's Lyon, France, faced the challenge of selecting only four Gospels from the many that were available at the time, uh, there were hundreds that circulated throughout Europe, Greece, Egypt, Asia Minor. Why only four? Well, his logic is impeccable. Here's what he wrote. There are four winds, four directions on the compass, four elements, and four pillars of the church. Therefore, there must be four Gospels. Now, he mentions many of the discarded Gospels by name. In particular, he, he mentions the Gospel of Thomas, which I did a couple of classes on in here. Once or twice, I think I've heard I did. you mention it. He mentions yeah. the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Judas, mm -hmm. the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And if you want to know more about these writings, this is accessible through a book by Bart Ehrman called Lost Christianities. He has a lot of these uh, collected and printed in this book so that you can see what they were. Now, the collection that we call the New Testament or the Christian Scripture 
was formally recognized sometime around the fourth century, about the, by the end of the fourth century. And the books, actually most of them are letters in the New Testament, uh, were not written in the order that they appear in our Bible. And if you want to know more about that, you can look at this wonderful book by Marcus Borg. Marcus Borg has spoken several times in this room. Uh, he's an excellent book, book on this topic called The Evolution of the Word. The earliest documents that we have, the earliest written documents that we have, are seven of the 13 letters attributed to Paul. Uh, these were written sometime in the early 50s. Now, you're already two decades after the death of Jesus. Just try to keep that in mind. See how your own memory is about recalling things that happened to decades ago, okay? Now, if you read these letters, which were usually written either to solve problems or to answer questions raised by a community of Jesus followers that Paul started, you will find virtually nothing about Jesus in them. Mark, which was written around the year 70, so now we're four decades past the crucifixion, and Mark had a source. We don't know what it was, but Mark obviously had a source because so much of Mark is also in the Gospel of Thomas. And my conclusion is that the Gospel of Thomas was written before any, any of the others. Both Matthew and Luke used Mark extensively in creating their narratives. Now, the Gospel of John is very different from these first three Gospels. And yet, it has a language that has shaped our understanding and the significance of Jesus as Matthew, Mark, and Luke have not. So much of John is familiar to people, even people with little church-going experience. In, in John, uh, Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And this language is at the heart of the Christian doctrine of incarnation. The best-known verse in all the Bible is from John, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So well-known is this verse that you don't even have to repeat it at a professional ball game. You just hold up a sign that says John 3.16, and that's it. I guess this is designed to convert people to do something. The story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana is one of the first signs. It's the first sign that, that Holly mentioned and we will get to. The story of Nicodemus visiting with Jesus, you know, where he's told he must be born again. Now, some of you are going to have a little experience about this when you hear that the commentators who write about John say that these stories are fiction. All right? Now, I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and this is what I was taught. Now, they wouldn't teach it now because it's to the, the church has gone too far to the right. The Southern Baptist church has gone too far to the right. But I can remember in a New Testament class a professor getting two students up and having them read the parts of Jesus and Nicodemus from John 3. And the professor said, Nicodemus and Jesus in the story spent the evening with each other. It takes less than three minutes to read this dialogue. And besides, who reported it? <laughs> wow, I never thought that before. The Samaritan woman of the well, raising a Lazarus from the dead. Doubting Thomas, needing to see the wounds of Jesus. These are stories that most everybody has heard at least once. And they've made it into our popular lexicon. Um, they're memorable. And they are found only in the Gospel of John. The I am statements that John uh, Holly mentioned, uh, which some have used to make Jesus, uh, make Christianity an, an exclusive religion. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the way, the truth, the life. All of these come from John. They're not found in the other Gospels. And, and many Christians have taken it for centuries that Jesus actually said these things. We'll see. Mm -hmm. 
Now, none of what I've just said is found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. In those Gospels, Jesus tells a lot of parables. There is not a single parable in the Gospel of John. Rather, in John, Jesus gives speeches, long speeches. <laughs> One of them is five chapters long. By the way, when these books were written, they weren't divided into chapter and verse. That came much, much later. So the so most... He, wait, wait. So Jesus didn't pre-title his talks? Every no. Week? No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't have to come up with a title for... He just called square. it, this is one, everybody write this down. This is two, write this down. <laughs> I, I have a cartoon that I show sometimes in the announcement slides for Jesus. It's a typical thing. Jesus is speaking to the crowd, and he's saying, all right, now listen up. I don't want there to be four different versions of this. <laughs> um the most striking difference is that in the other three Gospels, Jesus' divine identity and status, they're not part of his teaching. In John, they are. Now, you've heard of the time when Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple, right? Everybody's heard that story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is at the end of uh, Jesus' life as a provocative event that led to his crucifixion. In John, it's one of the first things Jesus does. So what's going on here? Um, the story of Jesus' final week is told very differently in John than in the other Gospels. They even differ on the day of Jesus' execution. So had the writer of John never heard of these other Gospels? Or is there something other going on? It's hard to believe that the writer or writers of John did not know the other narratives. After all, John was written sometime near the end of the 90s, the 10th century. Now you're 50 years past the crucifixion, past the death of Jesus. 50 years is a long time to get stories going and to create things. And there are a lot of theories about how Mark was written to harmonize with the Jewish liturgical calendar. Matthew and Luke were also, but they were expanded to cover the whole year. Mark covers six months. I don't think we'll be going into that. My point is that the, the Gospel of John is very different. And this difference was noticed as early as 200 by Clement of Alexander, who described it as a spiritual gospel. And he was not the first one to notice this. What people who have made this assessment have meant is that John's telling of the Jesus story is symbolic. It is a parable. That's why we did three parables leading up to this, to get us in the mindset to hear a parable, read a parable, and be able to deal with parable. Because the parable is not to be taken as either literal or factual. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter to say that the parable of the Good Samaritan is a story that Jesus made up. doesn't mean it's not important, that it doesn't convey a powerful truth. And I want you to keep that in mind as we begin to go through the Gospel of John. Hmm. I was, I was telling you earlier this week that the first religious book that kind of blew my mind was a reading of the parallel Gospels. So it's literally a book that has side by side by side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew 1, Mark 1, Luke 1, John 1. So you read each one at the same time in columns. I'll show you in just a second. The, the words aren't altered or explained. Jesus' words aren't in red. It's just a very plain book of reading the gospel side by side. But somehow the visual of this, seeing them lined up like this, with, uh, was deeply impactful to me. I had, you know, usually we read them sequentially, right? Or we flip to it in the Bible or, or however you do it. There would be, however, in this reading, huge gaps. And it, it, for me, I'm so visual. When I could see this, I understood, oh, these are not all the same. They're not all telling the same story here. Huge gaps in Matthew, Mark, and John, let's say, where Luke might be totally filled in. So Luke has the most elaborate birth story, for example, whereas it's totally absent in Mark and John. Seeing it outlined in this way really highlighted for me how each gospel is slightly different from the other. 
Here's another example. So this is, you can look up online, Parallel Gospel Reading, and you can find this website. You can also find a book, but I think, I mean, we have the Google, why not? Um, but here's another example where John is the only gospel with a prologue, and that's what you see here. It's a rather lengthy prologue. Not, not, the other three don't really have one. They're, they're just not there. So you can see the difference just in text, and you can't even fit all of the, the John one on this screen, how different they are. So setting a prologue for John was setting this gospel within an entire Hebraic tradition of kind of contextualizing it over the span of time. In the beginning was the word. It's very much how Genesis starts. So John is setting it in this kind of great expanse of time. However strange this sounds, the visual of these parallel gospels and their stark differences confirmed for me that I absolutely could not take them literally. For me, I was in college, I was 21, it was my last class in college actually, and this professor was known to be kind of a, a butt kicker. Like he, he, was, he was intense, he like, he threw it at you. And, but he changed my world. And it, that, that was liberating for me. For a classmate of mine, I remember her running out of the class crying. It was heartbreaking for her. Wait, so I shouldn't read, or, or maybe I need to learn a different way to read these. Um, I never could quite fit into the neat box of kind of a literalist evangelical tradition. I'm way too much of a questioner and a why and a tell me more. <laughs> um, so it was a little bit of a crisis in faith, even though it was also liberating. What could I believe if none of this was true? I started to read other stories and theologies. I was seeking some commonality between them. If there's so much in here, what else is in other texts that I can find wisdom in? There's some incredible creation stories out there. Among my favorites is the Kabbalist teaching about how our origins are in light, that we all emerge from the smattering of a star, and in each of our souls is a shard of that light, and the goal is to reconnect our light to heal the world. And the writers of John echo this in the preface, the first clue that they are, of a mystical mindset. It reads, what came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The life light blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. A second, close second of my favorite creation stories is the Hopi story of Spider Woman. Has anyone heard of Spider Woman? She wove the world into existence, and she mixed her saliva with dirt and sang life into these little clay creatures that she created. And from that dirt, she created four shades of clay, representing four different races of human, and said, now go forth and protect the land. We haven't done such a great job with that either. So we are light, we are saliva, and dirt. <laughs> this sounds about right. What I've learned in my studies, as I've continued pursuing things like philosophy, cosmology, is just how important myth is to the human being. We are tethered by our stories. We have family stories that we tell. We have personal stories that we tell, and we have religious stories that we tell. I love to imagine being among the first humans who must have gazed like the stars must have been blinding with no light pollution, with no buildings, with no airplanes. And they gazed up at these stars, and they probably we're like, where did they come from? Where did these blinky, shimmery jewels come from? Why can't I hold them? I can point at them. I can hold my hand like this, and they look like they could fill my hand, but I can't touch them. So what did they do? They start to make stories about them. They start to make origin stories. And they began to create rituals around those stories. The hunts and the birds and the seasonal changes all fit inside of the context of these stories that reflected the way that the first humans understood what we would call a very compact cosmology, right? We're not very different today. Yes, we have more knowledge, supposedly. Most of us can accept now that the earth is not flat and that the starry sky, I love this myth, is not a blanket with holes in it that's pulled over us by the sun chariot every night and removed every morning. Most of us can accept that that's not 
true, but it's a story about placing us in this grand cosmic experience. They, our stories ground us to what's familiar. The problem, of course, is when we begin to think that our stories are the most true, the most important, and the most right. We gravitate then towards people who share our beliefs and our stories, and we're just as tribal as humans ever were. We gravitate toward the ones who believe like we do, and we have dangerously more knowledge. So we're in this place of trying to figure out how to integrate different stories and live with each other in this way. It can be super disorienting, I think, to have two people sitting up here and saying, you need to question your stories. You need to decenter your stories and deconstruct them so that you can come back to them in a different way. I hope we will do that too. Because I think one of the things that you said over this week was, this is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be hard for us too. So we're in it. We're with you. <laughs> As a young kid, I was certain that the verses in John that were sort of thrown out at me in such a way that I felt bullied. Who shall ever believeth in him? You know, these, I felt bullied by some of these verses as a kid because they were so intense. I wasn't yet ready or even able to understand the depth of their meaning. They felt dangerous to believe in. Can I commit to this? Can I, can I put all of my thoughts and behaviors toward believing in what is being thrown at me? And it also felt dangerous not to believe in them because that put me outside of my tribe, outside of the people who were teaching me, outside of the people who believed like me. And I think the thing that I've come to realize is that these verses, taken out of the context of a whole story of the cosmologies in which they are intended to be understood, they sound very all or nothing. So I think we're trying to stretch them out and find that gray area in between. On the one hand, John has been called the most explicitly evangelical book in the Bible, and many evangelicals write about it in this way. It, it, it backs up the belief of the evangelical. On the other hand, it has been called the most subversively mystical book in the Bible. So which is it? What is true? How do we take what we've known about it, turn it around in our minds, and let it become something new? This is a challenge that we're undertaking, the one that will be really hard, and I think it's going to be a journey for all of us. <laughs> You'll hear us repeat a lot over the coming weeks that as long as we don't take John literally, as long as you can experience the language as metaphorical, that it will continue to expand, right? Just like our cosmologies, just like our knowledge of, of, of evolution and the earth and this cosmos that we fit inside of. The, the stories in John were written during a time of a very divided house. They are directly and deliberately antagonistic to Jewish tradition. They are trying to move faith, as I said earlier, outside of the institution, outside of the synagogue. Uh, you might recognize some, this drawing that, yeah, that I did earlier of that pyramid scheme, right? So they're trying to kind of crumble this pyramid scheme that one could at first only access through a certain point. There's a person or a God through which you can experience the sacred. But what we need to be careful of is not to replace the top of that pyramid with Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to deconstruct, right? Remember that he was trying to blow this whole thing open. He was trying to get rid of the pyramid scheme, rid of the hierarchy. So we can't replace Jesus at the top of the hierarchy. Another thing I think we'll try to balance, and I'm stealing this straight from you, Bill, is an institutional versus a personal change. So there's institutional outward change, and then there's personal inward change. One of the authors that we turn to, Shelby Spong, we've mentioned his book, The Fourth Gospel. He's writing from the place of the institution. He's challenging the institution. And he's saying, look, what if we saw this in a new way? And he's trying to shed light on just how wrong we may have gotten Jesus along the way. And Sanford, on the other hand, who wrote Mystical Christianities, he's really trying to get us to examine our interior world, our inner selves. 
so these two are in balance with one another. I relate more to Sanford. I think it just, it's, it's, it's just speaking to me a little bit more. But it occurs to me that the mystics, at least the ones that we're calling upon here, operate at both levels. They're operating within the institution and within the interior personal world. And they're trying to kind of change both at the same time. They do the inner work while they also build the transforming community, challenging both, traversing the interpersonal boundaries that usually divide us. This is what Jesus was all about, crossing boundaries. I don't think in a bad way, like, hey, let me just come sit in your lap. Maybe he did. I, I don't know. But, um, but these mystics, are, they are wayfinders, and they're whole makers. They're trying to create a whole picture of existence. And I think the invitation is, if we read John in this way, as a way toward whole making, it will reveal itself as a tool to help us become practical mystics. If we let, you said this last week, if we let Jesus into our hearts, will birth an entirely new mysticism in our own souls. With this, as Evelyn Underhill said, we can transform social worlds. So I really appreciate your pointing out the difference between um, Shelby Spong and Sanford. Shelby Spong, who's also spoken in this room, is an Episcopal priest. He's retired from that position now, but he was... Um, very, very committed to the church. All of his writings show this commitment to the institution as he wanted to see the church change and thrive. And so that was his stance. He always wore his uh, garb, his collar and all that. Sanford was also an Episcopal priest, but he left the parish work and went into private practice as a union analyst after getting trained in Zurich. He has no commitment to the institution. And, and, and so if you read the two of these men, you can keep in mind that they have a different sphere of their concern about what they wanted to say. And the, and the other thing that I would say based uh, on what you would say, we have, I have it. And I'm just assuming everybody else in this room has it too. We fall into the, the era of confusing truth with factuality. Mm. And that's a big problem for us. Is it factually true? And truth is more than something that is, that is factual. Mm. So I want to say something about why I want to undertake this deep dive into the Gospel of John. I've already talked about <clears throat> the superficial reasons I wanted a map to follow. I've never done this uh, in my life. I have certainly given sermons based on John. I've taught uh, classes based on passages from John. I can't think of a preacher or spiritual teacher who probably hasn't done that. But I've never done this undertaking because this gospel has been the source of so much difficulty and division. And we've already given several examples. I'll give you two the example, the I am statements in John have led some to claim that the only way to God is um, to, to get there through Jesus. Language is so problematic. Mm. And it is in the Gospel of John, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus never said that. I know some people get irritated by my having just said that, but um, we're going to show that that's true. Jesus never said that. And second, John has been the source of, of anti-Semitism among so-called Christians. I cringe when during the Lenten season, the cycle comes up every three years that we do the, the passion story from John, and it's blaming the Jews for the crucifixion. So keep in mind, the writer of John was a Jew. And when he uses the word Jew, it doesn't mean what it means in our vocabulary, in our understanding. Um, as Holly earlier said, he was writing out of a house divided 
the vision and understanding of Jesus that John and the people in the John community had put them at odds with the Jewish synagogue, with the leaders of the synagogue. So when John talks about the Jews, he's a Jew talking about those people. And um, I personally think that learning about and sharing what we're learning is fun. I think it's energizing. I think it's fun. But I want to share with you a deeper reason. Um, in a few days, I will be 84, and I'm closer to the end of my time here than when I first undertook to be a spiritual teacher. And all of these years, I have talked about what the mystics like Meister Eckhart and Thomas Merton, Teresa of Avila and St. Francis and others have said about their experience with the sacred. So, before I am no longer able to teach, I wanted to teach about knowing the sacred rather than knowing about the sacred. Those are different. Now, that may not be on your spiritual shopping list, but I want to know rather than knowing about. And what you're going to be exposed to, and you don't have to embrace it, um, is that what the core message of John is, is that if you want to have an experience of the sacred, or whatever other word you want to use. If this is what you want, you have to find and honor the sacred within you. That's the essence of John right there. And that way we can see the sacred that is beyond us. It is only the sacred within us who knows where and how to look for the sacred without. And when we honor and accept the sacred within ourselves, which is what Jesus did, we cannot help but see that sacred in everything and everyone else. This, I think, is what allows us to stop judging and to start loving without asking whether somebody is worthy of it or not. From my reading of Spong and of Sanford, what they've written about John, the breakthrough of this realization occurs at once like that, and it deepens and takes on a greater con uh, conviction with the nourishment of a daily spiritual practice <laughs> over time. It was coming. It was always It was coming. coming. You knew it was coming. <laughs> so the Gospel of John is a non-dual expression of things seen in their wholeness. And it is, at the same time, a call for us to see the wholeness in each other. Dualistic people live in a split and fragmented world. And that's the world that we are experiencing right now in our culture. Our culture is filled, at least if you listen to the loudest voices in the culture, with people who cannot accept that the sacred objectivity lives within them and within others. And this is precisely what's going on in the Christian denominations who are saying that some people are simply not worthy of full inclusion in the church at all levels. That's exactly what's going on. Now, I personally believe that those who cannot accept or forgive certain parts of themselves project this lack of acceptance outward and place it on other people because of their race, education, economic status, sexual orientation, or whatever. The fragmented mind sees a fragmented world. So for these folks, what you see is what you get. So I want to seek something else. I want to seek the mind, heart, life, and living of a mystic. And I'm not idealizing any mystic of the past or present. We are all inconsistent creatures. The writer of John didn't live in or with our worldview, didn't live in or with our cosmology. They all had their biases of the period. Uh, and as we, we will show, the Gospel of John was written in a time of fragmentation, hating, excluding, diminishing as a way of life. But the Gospel of John was written as a path of healing through this. So John was written to and for people who were experiencing all of this and offers another way. An, a, a way that offers immense sympathy 
and empathy and compassion in service to the world's healing. For God so loved the world that all the world might come to know life and have it abundantly. John 10.10 is maybe my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know all the ways that you experience yourself, but as you speak about wanting to know the sacred, and this needs to be said rather than know about it, there are so many people, and I wonder if you can appreciate that, who have known the sacred in this room because of what you know about. And, you know, we show up here, and I know that's happened for me. So that, that needs to be said. So I hope you experience yourself the way we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I love embarrassing you. Um, <laughs> as we frame this time that we're going to spend in John's gospel, a few things stand out to me. There's a lot of drama in John. There's the loose woman by the well. There's a visitor by night named Nicodemus. The dead come back to life. Hundreds are fed with a single loaf, right? A sea is calmed. All of these things happen in John. So God, sacred mystery, reality, is in all of these moments. That's the sort of collective consciousness of John. Sometimes it's dark and stormy. Sometimes it's more frightening than we can imagine. And this is probably how Afghanistan feels right now, more frightening than any of us in this room can imagine. Padre Gotuma, who I have just grown to love over time, he's a poet and a writer and a speaker. He writes, we may prefer one story over the other, but they both happen over and over, again and again. While I am in the storm, someone else is on the hillside, and someone else is waiting in a boat, watching waves begin to form. All of these are happen, happening at once, and all of them belong in the realm of the sacred. I want to end with a little story about two guys named Eyes and No Eyes. No Eyes walks out of his house and down the street. His existence is verified by his very efficient and comfortable movements. He does not wish to know what is going on on either side of the hedge as he walks down the street. He ignores the wind until it begins to blow the hat off of his head. He trudges steadily, diligently, and he avoids the muddy pools, oblivious of the kaleidoscopic light that they reflect. Eyes, on the other hand, takes the same walk as no eyes. For him, it is a constant revelation of beauty and wonder. He is drunk on the sunlight, delighted by the wind. The entire journey is a joy. The rich world gives up new secrets to him at every step and cries salutations to him from the hidden fields beyond the hedge. No eyes, when told of eyes' adventure, refuses to believe that they had gone along the same road. He judges that his companion must be floating about in the air, hallucinating and full of hot air. He will never be persuaded to the contrary unless he is persuaded to see for himself. The caveat here is that eyes can see. He sees both the beauty and he also sees the pain. No eyes cannot see either. But come and see for yourself what John has to offer, what we have to offer about John. We'll do our best, and together we will learn to see sacred mystery. So you have heard me say in the past how the writings of Paul Tillich have shaped my life. There are some words of Tillich that uh, I keep close at hand. He wrote, the question is not that we have received any word from the Lord. The question is that it's been received and resisted and distorted. This is the predicament of all of us. Human existence is never without that which breaks vertically into it. We're never without a manifestation of that which is ultimately serious and infinitely meaningful. We're never without a word from the Lord, and we never cease resisting and distorting it, both when we have to hear it and when we have to say it. And Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, 
There's no phenomenon in the universe that does not intimately concern us, from a pebble resting at the bottom of the ocean to the movement of a galaxy millions of light years away. So God is not out there. However, having said that, having intimate communion with the sacred is not an easy discipline. So tempted to say something about a daily spiritual practice. <laughs> Just let that fill in the space in between. <laughs> All right, here's an apple. At least we've been led to see this as an apple. And to say that it is an apple. When we were working on this class for today and I showed the slide to Holly, I said, what kind of apple is it? Because I found out you're an apple lover. I love apples. And she got it right. It's a Fuji. Fuji. Now, you could probably start a fight with somebody if you said this is a banana. <laughs> it's an apple, right? Wrong. It's a picture of an apple. And the picture of the apple does not give any of us the juicy, messy, satisfying taste of the apple itself. It just remains a picture. And this, I fear, is what religion and spirituality are for many people. We have a picture of the thing. We don't have the thing itself. And I know I quote Carl Jung a lot. One of my favorite lines of his is this. One of the main functions of organized religion is to protect people against the direct experience of God. Because Jung saw that organized religions are human creations most frequently operating in history together to maintain control over people. Concepts and ideas about things can be something that short circuits the experience of the transcendent. Now, you and I, we can look back at the Copernican Revolution, for example, at the Darwinian, Freudian, and we can look down on people who had difficulty with a paradigm shift from a earth-centered to a sun-centered cosmos. But paradigm shifts are hard for all people. They're hard for us. They're hard all the time. I, I started today by quoting uh, Teresa of Avila. You can't enter a room you're already in. And it is true that we're already in the heart of sacred mystery. But for most of us, that is not a journey or realization we have yet to make. Or if we have made it, we don't hold on to it for very long. Now, some spiritual teachers stress the importance of the journey and some stress the importance of the destination. I believe that the way of the journey and the destination are always interacting with each other. It's not so much a matter of where we're going or where we stand. It's where we're headed. It's what our intention is. Religion worth its salt which is a phrase I got from Jesus, <laughs> is at its best when it leads us forward, when it guides us on our spiritual growth as individuals and our cultural evolution as a species. Unfortunately, religion more often becomes a cage rather mm -hmm. than a guide, holding us back rather than calling us forward. Now, I think I understand the regressive turn that our world is taking in both politics and religions right now, that doesn't make, my understanding of it doesn't make it any less tragic. What we all need now is a wise spiritual guidance for, his, for what is yet to be, and, and not a dose of nostalgia for the good old days. And though it's not the only place to find the guidance that I'm talking about, I believe what we can find, learn, and experience from John's understanding of Jesus can provide us with this guidance. Now, I do know the church's history of oppression, the Crusades, colonization, segregation, slavery, sexism, a ton of other abuses. But the Jesus movement also has a really rich tradition of changing courses. Mm -hmm. And John is one of those. It takes a turn to the right or to the left. Yeah, <laughs> he parted the, right through the middle of the sea. <laughs> Walks right through the ocean. So one of the lessons from John is that ongoing conversion and movement are necessities, not only for the beginning of one's faith, but every step along the way. 
and, and without this, we can be faithful neither to the sacred, to ourselves, to each other, or to the world around us. I got found by a poem this week by Deschardins that mm -hmm. I had never read. Had you seen it? I had not, no. I want to close mm -hmm. with it. He wrote, mm -hmm. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. <laughs> no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and see you here next Sunday. Thank you.